A Democratic lawmaker accused of sexual harassment has resigned from his caucus leadership position and ESAs, aka vouchers, are continuing to make their way through the General Assembly. This is the week of April 15th. Thanks for listening to Grand Divisions. I'm Natalie Allison. And I'm Joel Ebert. Welcome back, Joel. We're glad to have you back in the podcast room. Yeah, sorry to uh, throw listeners and you, Natalie, a curveball last week. I just had to get out of town for a few days. No one blames you. No one blames you. Again, you didn't miss that much. But what did I miss? It's unlike uh, two major developments, uh, at least as far as uh, Representative Rick Staples, who uh, listeners know, of course, was recently accused and and had complaints filed against him of sexual misconduct. Uh, What was sort of the the end result? Yeah, so there were multiple developments last week. Um, So the the first was that we finally got a hold of the, the letter that was promised that would appear in his personnel file to validate all the reports that you and I had done. Um, our, our original reporting, we were relying on some background sources. Uh, of course, we had reached out to Staples himself. and Who denied even being under investigation, he, and lo and behold, that wasn't true. He did. He denied that there was any investigation into him. He had denied uh, that he had been found guilty of anything, which, uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you could say being found in violation is is being found guilty. I don't know how you want to put it. But, but yeah, a, a House uh, Ethics Subcommittee that had investigated Reports of sexual uh, harassment by Rick Staples did indeed find him to be in violation of the General Assembly's workplace harassment policy. So this letter that uh, spells that out was in his file. Um, I had, you know, gone and, and checked for a couple days last week. Um, it ended up getting put there Tuesday afternoon, um, and so I went back Wednesday morning and, and did did find that letter. And it it says they investigated him. They found that he was in violation of the policy. They recommended um, several unspecified, uh, I think they called it remedial measures against him. And the letter said they did that to basically keep him from, from reoffending. They don't say what those were. Uh, So that happened. And presumably those might be like additional training. Uh, Clearly one action that was taken is he's no longer on the ethics committee. Right. He has been removed online from both the committee and subcommittee. That was information that I had tried to get from uh, like the legislature's uh, administrative director. And what I had been told is that that wasn't information that was uh, that that she was at liberty to release, but lo and behold, they did take him off of the, the listing for those committees. So that happened. Um, and then on Thursday, uh, Rick Staples stepped down from his position as assistant minority leader with the Democratic caucus. So that is the, uh, I guess the, the number, well, I, number three position maybe, uh, in the, the house. Yeah. I mean, caucus. so essentially these positions outside of, outside of the majority or minority, yeah, outside of the minority leader. leader, essentially these are, these are like honorary positions. Although one, uh, being the caucus chairman is kind yes. of a, you know, you, you kind of whip folks into the shape. The caucus chairman the, certainly, but these, they have, you know, they have their minority leader and then they have the minority leader pro tem who is, is John DeBerry. And then they have the assistant minority leader who's Rick Staples. Um, and then, you know, they have other positions as well. 
it doesn't seem like those positions have a lot of responsibilities mm-hmm. in, in the Democratic But campaign. you had found out initially that uh, Staples was no longer, was he ousted from this? Did he resign no, from this? No, he was not ousted. Uh, Mike Stewart, the the Democratic caucus chairman, said this was, this was his decision, that no one asked him to resign. Um, this was something he decided to do as a result of the ethics subcommittee's findings. What were the Democrats' reactions to all of this development? I mean, I, I know at first when we initially broke this story, the only person we had talked to uh, that was really willing to talk was um, the, the uh, House Democratic um, uh, caucus chairman, Mike Stewart. Um, what happened last week? Did any others talk? Uh, it was more of the same. It was more of, of no one really wanting to talk, um, including including Democratic leadership, including other members. Um, so I had broken the news just before the, the Democrats' weekly press conference, broken the news that he was stepping down from, Rick Sables was stepping down from his leadership position in the caucus. And as that story came out during the press conference, another reporter asked them to confirm it because we they, they had declined to confirm it ahead of that. And we had uh, worked with a couple background sources on that as well. And, and Mike Stewart, uh, wouldn't say yes or no. He wouldn't confirm that, that Staples was indeed stepping down. He kept saying, Oh, Staples will put out a statement later. Um, and then once we started pressing them on that, they send out a press conference, a press release in the middle of the press conference. Um, again, Rick Staples statement saying he was stepping down. And then after they did that, um, Mike Stewart, agreed to answer some questions. Um, but, but leader minority leader, Karen Camper wouldn't say anything. She, the day before had declined to answer questions when I approached her on the house floor, uh, during the news conference, she kept saying, I can't comment. Um, even, even generally, she wouldn't even speak generally about what she thought about, uh, the a culture of sexual harassment in the legislature, in the legislature. Is it a problem? Does more need to be done? She kept saying she can't comment because she was a member of the ethics subcommittee. None of this is too shocking. I mean, you've got members who on one side of the aisle are willing to criticize the others on the other side when it's an issue with the member of the opposite party, when it's their own member, of course, it puts them in a more awkward position. We were trying to, before I, I left for a brief vacay, uh, ask uh, both Democrats, repubs, uh, about whether they thought there, the, there was an issue of sexual harassment a- at the Capitol. Uh, on both sides, they said, no, 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 we think everything is fine. Uh, to kind of go along that line, though, I, I asked two sexual uh, uh, harassment experts, uh, and they really were critical of, of the current culture at the Capitol and said that more work needs to be done. So again, you have on one side, uh, Democrats, Republicans saying everything's fine. No problem here. We've got the facts are four lawmakers in four years facing allegations of some sort of misconduct, uh, three of which during their time in office. And you've got experts that say more work needs to be done. Uh, the only work that has been done in the past few years is to require additional sexual harassment training, but that's been scaled back in various ways. Um, so uh, again, it will be interesting to see when the next, uh, issue comes up because I can assure you there will be another issue uh, because this issue uh, seemingly is popping up all the time. Yeah. And I, and I think uh, listeners can, can expect us and other reporters to continue pressing the, the democratic caucus on this staples issue. Just as if there was an issue with Republicans, as if we, we have done with, with representative David. Yeah. It seems like staples went ahead and, and, 
decided on his own to step down from his his caucus leadership position, but the caucus still hasn't really said um, for sure that that they don't think any more action needs to be taken. At least the leader hasn't said that. Mike Stewart basically said he thought it was appropriate that Staples stepped down. Uh, no, he doesn't think he should resign. But since we have have really gotten we've gotten crickets from, from Karen Camper. And so I think, uh, we're going to continue asking her what she thinks should be done. Certainly she has a unique perspective as a woman, um, in her position to speak on this. And I, I went and after that press conference, the next day I went and spoke to the, to the chair of the house ethics committee and subcommittee that's representative Matthew Hill. And he told me that, that Camper's, um, explanation for why she can't talk to us even generally that she's a member of the committee really isn't an excuse that he said you know of course she's free to not comment if she wants but her being on this committee does not prohibit her from speaking generally about the situation of course uh other big news from the week included the passage of the education savings account this is Governor Bill Lee's uh, biggest legislation to date, um, he's had several bills already approved and signed into law, but this is one that uh, is really kind of his his administration's, uh, you know, deepest step into the the, the wide open uh, world of the legislature. Uh, it's gotten some pushback from lawmakers. It still looks like it might face pushback this week when it is in, in House uh, and Senate finance committees. Tell me, what was the latest, Natalie, yeah, so, from this week? so last week it cleared two more committees. It made it through the House Finance Subcommittee and the Senate Education Committee. Uh, and House Finance Sub, it was just a voice vote. Um, so those members didn't really have to go on the record with their votes. Um, in, in the Senate, it did pass on a roll call vote. Uh, I think there were a few who were voting against it. Um, but yeah, this week it, it is in two full finance committees and uh, which is it, really the final hurdle before yes. it goes to the floor of each and, and yeah chamber. and and it it doesn't seem like every member in both of those committees even republicans are all on board and it seems like um the administration and and caucus leadership certainly has their work cut out for them uh I'm sure this past weekend, I'm sure throughout the day today, uh, it, it does not seem like there is unanimous support for the bill. Um, There's going to be serious vote, you know, whipping. Uh, it sounded like there were some minor changes between the Senate and the House version, uh, including the fact that the Senate was not uh, happy about the idea that homeschooling would be removed. Yes. Uh, so that's at least one major difference. Are there any other significant differences in some of this? So Dolores Gresham, she did uh, add back in a provision that would allow homeschool students to qualify for these. Um, also raised the the number of students who like vastly could be, expanded, yeah, right? basically doubled the cap that so the from house 15, has. So 15,000 to 30,000. 30, yeah. uh, that's what she also did. Um, there still are questions surrounding what they're going to do about allowing students whose parents are undocumented, students who are here uh, illegally, whether they're going to qualify. They've both chambers have sort of gone back and forth on that issue. Um, G.A. Hardaway, he's a Democrat from Memphis, has asked the attorney general for an opinion on, you know, whether it's constitutional to ban these students from being able to qualify um, for vouchers, you know, if they are attending public schools. So there's still going to be changes. There's There's been changes on these bills every single week. Um, I, I imagine they will change again this week.
This week on the podcast, we have a very special guest. We have Representative Andy Holt. He is the chairman of the Budget Subcommittee. Thanks for coming on, Chairman Holt. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to my opportunity to be here with you. This is also your first time in the Tennessean building, I, I understand. That is true. And I've, uh, I've, I've taken notes from the time <laughs> I've come in till now. <laughs> There, uh, we're gone in two weeks, so you know your notes might be obsolete because uh, we're moving. So uh, we wanted to have you in this week because it is the budget appropriations, the governor's supplemental budget. Uh, it sounds like as you were coming in, you didn't really have an idea of what's going to be in it, what's going to be uh, not included, but kind of give us a general idea of what what can you uh, you know what can we as reporters and listeners expect to to happen this week with the budget process. So in the budget process that will occur this week, there's going to be a lot of uh, negotiations that are going on, uh, things that obviously we have a $38.6 billion budget proposal. And in that, we would think, wow, you could fund everything that anyone could ever imagine. That's really just not the case. When you look at the amount of appropriations that were requested from just House members alone, far more than what we would ever be able to conceivably fund based on the limited amount of really discretionary funds that are given to members of the General Assembly. How much? Uh, how many appropriations total in the House? Mm, I couldn't tell you the the exact number, but you know, well over a hundred mm-hmm. uh, requests, specific requests, and as it relates to a total, I really should have brought those figures with me. That's um, okay. But but I, I mean, normally they range from small dollar amounts, twenty thousand dollars, to sometimes you have eighty, some ninety million dollars, or something like that. Yeah, and I think you know, I mean, they can even go smaller than that. I can think of a few specifically that are like five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And what we have to realize is that you know, if a program does have merit. A five thousand dollar, you know, uh, influx of of money into a certain program can mean a great deal to some of these local groups or organizations. So we do try to take that into account, and obviously the purpose is always too to make sure that we spread as much uh, monetary you know, compensation back to the members across the state as we possibly can. And of course, the focus primarily is, does this expenditure of state money have a state application or a regional application? We really do try to avoid earmarking money specifically for pet projects. And that's something that obviously, you know, I've had um, disdain for for years and years. Um, But we do try to appropriate money where we think it will receive the highest amount of utilization. So then how do you go about deciding who's going to get those? appropriations? Is it, you know, uh, is there a formula? Is it who was nicest to you that week? (laughs) (laughs) What do you do? There's obviously a lot of different factors that, you know, uh, create the choosing process and and the awarding process. Uh, There is, again, primarily a focus on who does this impact? Is this, uh, again, a statewide or a regional impact? Uh, of course, all of us have things that we're very, very much, um, you know, in favor of. Of course, you know, folks like me and, and many others have things that we're really not in favor of. We want to prioritize the, the, the lack of funding for certain things as well. So all those have to be taken into consideration. Obviously, leadership has uh, particular initiatives that they want to see rewarded or awarded. Um, but, you know, again, it's not a it's not a process that I could sit down and describe on paper and say this is exactly how money is awarded. Um, it, a lot of it is based, again, primarily on the members bringing forward requests of need, and especially this is especially this time around is so different. 
I'm brand new as the budget subcommittee chair. We have a new chair of the full committee. We have a new speaker. We have a new governor. Um, you know, we have other dynamics that are going on in the Senate right now. And so when you look at all those different factors, uh, and again, the specific appropriations requests that are brought forward, then we really just have to sort through those. And of course, the sorting process really starts with no, 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 maybe, and <laughs> yes. So there's lots of there's lots of things that just cannot be funded. So I know in the past, when when appropriations are kind of gone through the the long list, it's generally done with you have the speakers, you have the majority leader, the finance and and subcommittee uh, chairman involved. Is and this is all kind of taking place in a, a behind closed door setting. Uh, is that going to be the case again this year? Or are you guys going to open this up to a larger setting uh, where more people will be able to see this? Or or how does that process work? So this is all new to me. Obviously, this is the first time that I've served in this capacity. Um, what I have seen is that just like meetings that we had on Thursday, we bring everybody in, give everybody a chance to deliver an address regarding their appropriations and why it's important to them. I think what we realize is that I think this is safe to say the majority of those appropriations requests were not even really spoken about in that particular meeting. Um, you know, different appropriation requests are, are brought forward for lots of different reasons. Uh, some that, you know, and I've got a couple of those too, to enhance, um, you know, rural broadband. I've got one for 10 million, one for 30 million. Um, the likelihood of those being funded is relatively low. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of the process in bringing forward um, these budget appropriations is to say, hey, these are really important issues. And Part of the process, just like with some pieces of legislation, the intention may not actually be to pass them, but to draw attention to a topic or to create a conversation around that uh, topic as well. As it relates to the behind the scenes or out front, you know, a lot of these just based on their nature, based on the fact that at some point there has to be a deciding body that says this moves forward and this doesn't then that does typically have to be a group, a smaller group of individuals who ultimately make that decision. Because again, if we bring in uh, all 99 members, well, I can tell you what's going to be the most important priority. It's going to be the most important priority to to 99 different people. And for those uh, that, you know, aren't familiar with this, when we're talking about these appropriations, they I are... I wanted to clarify that. No, no, yeah. that's that's fine. Uh, but they, they are, in some forms, an actual bill. And in other forms, it's just a, this is an idea, like, I, I think I remember one from a couple of years ago to fund um, the production of a movie or something like that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a, in the form of a piece of legislation it per se. It cannot be in the form of a piece of legislation. So we do not use appropriations to fund legislation. Okay. Um, so how does, I mean, overall, your impression, you know, now that you have a, a, a direct view of this, uh, do you like this process? Do you think that it's, you know, a fair process? Do you, do you think there should be more changes? Because I know the speaker talked about the idea of the budget process involving all 99 House members. Yeah, and I think that we have achieved the opportunity for all 99 House members, and that really does. And, and I know people will roll their eyes in a way I would, too, if I were listening to this and it was being stated by a partisan Republican like myself. But <laughs> every 
every member really does. And I hope those laughs come the, through. We, on, were, yeah. we were eye-rolling while he said <laughs> and that. And we were all giggling, actually. Um, but when you look, obviously certain members of the minority party are not going to receive as much priority as other members of the Republican Party. And for anybody to say, oh, well, that's terrible, that's unfair, well, welcome to politics. That's brutally honest. That's though. being brutally honest. But, you know, one in particular that I think is funny is uh, – um, Representative Clemens, who he and I had a target on his back for a while. Didn't you endorse him in the national mayoral race? <laughs> Actually, I did. That's true. I thought I thought that's I like saw a that poison somewhere. pill endorsement for that you, though. Isn't may it? have been the purpose. I don't know. I've also endorsed Mary Mancini as the <laughs> lifetime appointment for the Democrat chair. Um, but that said, probably the person who may embody the most polarized opposite of myself, John Ray Clemens has a, an appropriations request for $400,000 related to honeybees and the fact that we have a really big problem here in the United States and specifically in Tennessee as well related to the plight of honeybees. They're dying, yeah. They, they are. And so, you know, what one may say, oh, my goodness, John Ray Clemens, no chance in the world we're going to fund this. I'm actually looking at, at ways to say, hey, this actually is a priority mm. and not based on the political position or the political ideology of this member, but based solely upon the legitimacy of this request, I think it should be entertained. It's very mature of you, Representative <laughs> Very Holt. mature, I would agree. You've, be, you've been a changed man this session. Andy 2.0. <laughs> There, there have been occasional outbursts of the 1.0. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm aware of none. <laughs> okay, speaking of other things this session, uh, let's talk about the, the bill you have that uh, that would require the, the state AG to defend um, school districts' bathroom policies. Yeah. Um, so I noticed when I came in and used the restroom facilities here in the Tennessee and I assume the new building will be the same. There was a designation for men and there was a designation for women, which tells me that it must be a priority to bifurcate by biological sex um, the difference between those two. And I think that's a good thing. And I think that's something that should be not only clearly implemented, but also protected in public schools all across the state of Tennessee. I have had a really, and this is no joke, really great opportunity over the last couple of weeks to have some conversations with some folks that you wouldn't typically think would be in my office or would find any, um, you know, points of agreement. But uh, I think that having a clear written policy that's based on something, in this case, I think the objective policy and the objective basis upon which bathroom segregation, if we want to use that word, or bifurcation, should be based on biological sex. And I think that allowing LEAs to have that policy written down without the threat of being targeted by the ACLU or some other nationally well-funded group, um, that, that's important. And it's not just important for people like me who have thoughts and opinions based on lots of different reasons, whether those are um, based on not wanting my children to be exposed to the opposite sex. Um, but I think it's also really important for those folks who find themselves in the transgendered community so that there's a clear written policy as to what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? Because, uh, you know, it's pretty much a biological function of living, you're going to have to go to the restroom at some point throughout the day. And so for that to be a constant 
battle or issue for uh, for those folks in that community, I think it's just as important for them as it is for anybody else to have a clear, understandable policy. So that said, obviously, we deal in the realm of um, of what ifs in the legislature a lot of times. And so you have members like Bill Beck, who I personally have great appreciation for and love. Sometimes it's hard to help him understand things when we're um, conversing passionately in committee. Um, but, you know, all these wild examples can be posed of what if, what if, what if. Well, how about this? How about what if we just implement a policy that's based on local agreement and local school boards to address the specific and local issues that they're facing. I think that's clear and good for all involved. But I, I want to ask you something, because as I watched this in committee, it sounded like at least, and I don't think this was your answer, but one of uh, your colleagues, it wasn't this past week, the week before, uh, where they said that, okay, the policy actually has to require school districts to, uh, you know, have it people. It does not. It They're, doesn't. So they can set a policy that says uh, we we are going to allow transgender people to use whatever bathroom they want. Um, what it says is that it has to be bifurcated or has to be based on biological sex. So I mean, the, so that, that seems to indicate that it is a mandate that this policy is written in one way, right? It's a... I think a mandate that the policy can be written by the school board if they want to implement that. And if they choose to do that, then they will be protected by the AG or an agent designated by the AG. When you add that designation, do you fear that the AG might not want to represent these cases? No, I just recognize that the AG is sometimes overburdened Mm -hmm. and spread thin. And I think that I'm not an attorney, thankfully, nor a news reporter. Um, thankfully. Thankfully. Um, and uh, I'm a politician. Thankfully. <laughs> Even worse, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I think that we should recognize that, you know, there are legal challenges. Some take more effort, some take less. And so if the AG would find themselves in a position of saying the case would be more well vetted by another agent, then that gives them the opportunity to do so. Quickly, last question on, on that front. People that are part of the transgender community say that this is specifically targeted. It's an attack at them. What's your response to that? Uh, My response to that would be that I've made myself completely open and available at any time. And I've had several interactions with folks representing that community throughout this session. And I've really appreciated that as well. Um, My sole focus in coming forward with this legislation, as it has been for the last several years, is not to target those individuals, but as much as anyone else to protect them with this legislation. Again, a clear written policy takes all of the question out for everyone involved as to what is and what is not allowed. For us to go about and say, well, this is a clear mandate and absolutely opposed to the transgender community, I think is a false narrative. Uh Quickly, I know we're running out of time here. Let's, oh, are we? We are. Let's, let's switch so. over to another uh, school-related topic, which, by the way, do, you, do your kids go to public school or are they homeschooled? My kids are homeschooled. Okay, cool. Um, so speaking of vouchers, there's been some amendments back and forth. You know, we'll, Education we'll, savings accounts. I was about to say, I I, we've not had that. a voucher oh, come on. this year. You, know, <laughs> had an you guys keep bill. doing that. Every, it's like that's – you guys have been instructed Excuse not to me, respond to Excuse me, I've got to go to bill review. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've got to go to a building. Oh, you mean pre-meeting? pre-meeting? Is that what you mean? <laughs> Anywho. Uh, there has been back and forth. You know, are we going to allow uh, homeschool families to participate? Are we not? Whatever, whatever. Um, what's the latest with that? How How is this bill doing? What's your prediction for...
for this week in finance? So on Saturday, I spent five hours and 47 minutes in a town hall at the University of Tennessee at Martin, making myself publicly available to anyone who would have comments related to the ESA provision. I'm not the sponsor of the legislation. I am trying to keep up with what's going on. I believe the latest amendment that was either introduced or filed on Saturday, I believe is the case, limits the ESA provision to four counties across the state. So Hamilton, Knox, Davidson, and Shelby. So it gets rid of the Jackson-Madison. Correct. Okay. And that's my understanding. Of course, that's an, that's an amendment that's been proposed. Sure. That's not has not, not yet been adopted. Sure. Uh, my opinion is that, again, as I stated previously, sometimes we deal in the legislature with the what ifs, what ifs. What, what if this is a terrible program? What if this is uh, corrupt? And what if there's, you know, abuse and fraud and waste associated with this program? Yeah, what if? Let's look at the objectives that we know right now. We objectively know that we have students in the state of Tennessee who are destined to go to schools that are absolute unmitigated failures. Now, that doesn't mean that the entire system is a failure, but that does mean that portions, and in some cases significant portions, of the current system are a failure. So if we objectively identify that we have failing schools, we objectively identify that we have students that are graduating from some of these schools who cannot read and who cannot perform basic math, one thing that I do objectively know is that if you can't read and you can't do math, I can, I can guess what kinds of activities you're going to be involved with in life, most likely. Those are going to lead toward the path of prison, unfortunately. And my theory is, and I think this has been my theory for the last five years, since I was introduced to the idea of school choice, I've been an advocate for school choice. We're either going to invest in education dollars into the lives of these children, or we're going to invest in their adult years at $47 a day for their prison housing. My theory is if we can currently identify failing school districts, and we've done that with this legislation as amended, hopefully, then we should do something to create a change in those specific four areas. I mean, one of the big criticisms, though, is that this doesn't just limit it to the failing schools, that if you're in a district that is, again, in Nashville, it's got it contains failing schools, but you want to exit a middle tier school you could get out of it and, and, and use an ESA with this pr- initiative. Why not just limit it to only failing school students? Find me, bill language, write it, that will pass the constitutional constraints within which we must operate as a general assembly to identify only those failing schools, and I promise you I would adopt it. There is not a way to do that, mm. in my opinion. So when we look at identifying the problem, it is unfortunate because I think you would find pretty successful schools in any of those four counties. But again, we can also objectively identify failing schools. So here's the question. Do nothing and continue to allow a significant portion of our state's students to continue going into failing schools or, in my opinion, create a competitive environment where the limited and scarce resources of education funding can at some point in the future be competing against one another. And if someone can provide a better avenue to educate kids, 
I am totally okay with letting them receive the money for doing so. The other question I think, of course, there, there's many questions about this legislation, but one of them being this creates a, a $25 million a year uh, program that the government is, is you know, t- taxpayers are funding. Uh, why should the average taxpayer in, in, you know, your county, Weekly County, that doesn't even uh, uh, really have any impact with this legislation be funding this? Well, when you say it's a $25 million program, it sure sounds like a lot of money. It's oh, more than wow. that over time, but yeah. But yeah, wow, $25 million on an annual basis. But then ask yourself, how much is the BEP funding for fiscal year 1920? You have any clue? I don't I don't oh, know that. Guess what? I do. I happen to know. It's $6.447 billion. Billion with a B. So $6.447 billion, that's like saying we're going to spend $10,000 on education, K-12, traditional K-12, and we're going to spend $38 on this very small program here on the side. Again, do we want to spend money for prison or do we want to spend money for education? And in my opinion, the expenditure in an environment where we have the ample amount of state resources, we also have, again, clear failing schools. We also have clearly students who are in the process of not receiving education, being funneled through, sent out the door, and can't perform the basic tasks that we have basically said, this is what education will do. That's a problem. I have to go to a conference committee. I'm sure. However, I'm sure you do. We're so glad you came. A conference on. committee. What a cop out. The community oversight board. <laughs> oh bill. yeah, that is real. It's Never a mind. real. Sorry. Real meeting that's happening. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> thank you for coming on. Uh, oh, last question. No, we just what's had your, the last what's your, question. What's your favorite um, Don't ask anonymous me Twitter account? Oh, mm. my favorite anonymous Twitter Twitter account is probably. <laughs> The CBD mole. Uh-oh. CBD. CHB. No, no, no. CBD Wait, mole. there's a CBD mole? Yeah. The guy that makes fun of the CHB oh, mole. Wait, no. <laughs> I didn't even know this existed. Yeah, they recreate it like as if somebody <laughs> had just smoked a joint and then they go back over what CHB <laughs> just said. Okay, so. CBD mole. That's representative. Follow it. it might be yours. anonymous <laughs> political account. It probably is his. I don't know. I, all I know is the picture's hilarious. <laughs> Okay. Thank Thanks you for coming again on. for coming on. Thank you. And now finally, our notebook dump. Given that I wasn't here for a week because I'm shirking my journalism duties, I'm throwing it all to Natalie. All right. So the the latest in the the saga of the dueling abortion bills is that the fetal heartbeat bill, which would ban abortions in the state after a fetal heartbeat is detected, that's typically around six weeks, has been sent to summer study in the committee. Uh, So for background, this bill passed the House. Um, In the Senate, though, it it was effectively killed for the year. It's been sent to summer study. However, uh, the House has brought back the trigger ban, which would outlaw abortion in the case that Roe versus Wade is overturned. Um, two Republicans, Micah Van Huss and Matthew Hill, who were supporters of the heartbeat bill, had helped kill the trigger ban in the House. Uh, Representative Ron Gant 
put it up for a recall vote, though, so it's back, and it will be up for a vote in the HELP Committee this week. Uh, that is the bill that Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally says the Senate is supportive of. So there could be one abortion bill that makes it out of the General Assembly this year, and it will likely be the trigger ban. Sports betting is advancing in both the House and the Senate after it had stalled uh, in both, but in the House, particularly with bipartisan concerns over the effects of legalizing more um, opportunities for gambling, the updated legislation does set aside more state money for gambling addiction and recovery programs. Uh, That bill moves on to House government ops and Senate finance. Uh, The latest in bathroom bill news and indecent indecent exposure bill that essentially just specifies that bathrooms and locker rooms are considered public spaces for the purpose of indecent exposure charges has passed the house with some opposition from lgbtq groups uh that bill had undergone an amendment that removed some language specifically uh targeting transgender people um however uh tennessee equality project and other groups in the lgbt community have still said this bill um is concerning another bathroom type bill uh this one is sponsored by representative Andy holt it would require the attorney general to defend school districts who have policies on bathroom use um and having to go to the bathroom of your biological sex that bill has also advanced it is heading to House Finance Committee and to Senate Judiciary. Uh, And then speaking of opposition to bills like this, Taylor Swift, you may have heard of her. She first weighed in on Tennessee in, in Tennessee politics last fall when she endorsed Phil Bredesen for U.S. Senate. She made this past week a donation of $113,000 to the Tennessee Equality Project. That is the state's uh, largest pro-LGBT advocacy group, uh, encouraging them and their efforts to defend what they have called a slate of hate or bills that are targeting the LGBT community. And Joel, why don't you finish us off with what the news is with medical marijuana this year? It's dead. It's up in smoke. It's down in flames. <laughs> uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, the medical marijuana bill, much to my chagrin uh, that I was writing about a lot uh, or tried to these last few years, went down very quickly in uh, Senate committee. Uh, wasn't even really considered and up for discussion. It will be uh, reconsidered next year. Steve Dickerson, the, the the Senate sponsor, said it, rather than letting it die in a committee vote, he would work on it in the background and bring it back at some point next year. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. Thanks for listening. As always, you can catch us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please continue to rate us. We have a little more than 40 ratings. I'd like to see more. Uh, and we have an average of 4.5 stars. Please get us to 4.6. Yeah. Uh, Come on, guys. We're trying to get some bonuses out of this. Maybe we can reach that. Uh, you can find us every week on Tuesdays. Uh, the podcast is always produced by Erica Whitney and John Garcia. Thanks very much to uh, Natalie for pinch hitting uh, these last two weeks on uh, putting these episodes together. Uh, As always, I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week.